Well, we're in Acts chapter 21 this morning, so go ahead and turn there with me if you would. And as we turn there, it is, as Gene just prays, been an amazing last few days. You know, our church celebrates Sanctity of Life Sunday every January, observing the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And as of Friday, Roe v. Wade has been overturned due to Dobbs versus Jackson. And so it's just a, just an amazing moment in the life of the, the culture. Yeah. And this isn't, a, this isn't just a, a political issue for us in the sense of uh, some sort of thing that we're concerned about is like taxes or things like that. It's, it's, uh, we certainly use the political process as believers. We're talking that more as we go through the book of Acts and how Paul uses the political process. That's, that's, not, uh, that, that's not inappropriate for Christians to do, but this isn't just some political side issue for us. Uh, life is a, a core uh, historic confessional value of, of the church, of, of the Christian. We believe in the, the sanctity of life as, as part of our, our confession of faith. It's been, been true from the very earliest times of, of church history. We think about uh, the, the culture in which Christianity existed in time of, of the apostles. There was a letter actually from around the, the time of the birth of Christ. And it was a, a Roman citizen writing home to his, his wife. He was working in Alexandria and she was pregnant. And he said, in his letter, he said, no, we're st- I'm still in Alexandria. Do not worry if uh, the rest of the group comes back and I'm still here. But I would urge and beg you to be concerned about the child. And if I receive my wages soon, I will send them up to you. So he says, be be concerned about this, this child. But this, this is how he expresses this concern for his unborn child. He says, if by chance you give birth and if it's a boy, let it be. But if it's a girl, throw it out. And that was a, a common practice in the Roman culture, that if a, a child was born that wasn't wanted, it would just be left to the elements to, to perish. And Christianity, from its very beginning, of course, opposed this culture of death. I was reading... From the Didache, it's a, uh, a work done by their early church. It was, it was one of the first things written by the church after the time of the New Testament being complete. In fact, it may have even written right before the book of Revelation. But listen to what, listen to what we read in this early church teaching. It's not the Bible, but it was written by people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah and, and were uh, uh, Christians, it says this, this is how it begins. Again, this is from around, let's say, 90 AD. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there's a great difference between the two ways. The way of life is this. First of all, thou shalt love the Lord, the God who made thee. Secondly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And all things whatsoever thou wouldst not have befall thee, neither do thou unto another. And then it goes on a few uh, sentences later and says this, and this is the second commandment of the teaching that we're giving you. Thou shalt not do murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not corrupt boys. Thou shalt not commit fornication. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, and then it says, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. That is from, again, around 90 AD. This is the historic confession of, of believers that we are pro-life, that we care for the unborn, we care for the born, and so we have this incredible opportunity now for us as a church to continue in that. Where we are today, we're, we're thankful for the decision that was, was made by the Supreme Court, and yet we recognize we are still in a culture that does not value life the way that it should, both the unborn and the born. And so we have, as a church, the opportunity to continue uh, the historic confession of, of our faith, as we, we care for the weak, as we care for the unborn, as we care for the born. In fact, the, the irony, the, the sad irony, is that in our state, uh, this probably means that, that at least in the short term, there may be more abortions taking place in Illinois as states around us uh, begin to pr- protect life, and our state does not. So, how grateful are you to the Lord for putting Bethany Community Church where he's put us? We are in a a culture, in a state, that is probably going to continue for the foreseeable future to perpetuate a culture of death, and we are God's gospel presence here. So, let's move toward that end, right? Amen? Amen. 
We're here in Luke, uh, ta- Luke's talking here in Acts, and his desire in this section of, of Acts, it's kind of interesting this is hitting today, is, is to defend Christianity against some accusations that have been made against it. In fact, what takes place here in Acts chapter 21 with this, this mob sets in motion the, the rest of Paul's ministry throughout the rest of the book of Acts. What happens because of this mob, this injustice that takes place, affects the rest of Paul's ministry through the book of Acts. The injustice that takes place here is not rectified in Luke's account here. It, it continues to perpetuate horrible effects for, for Paul and for the church. As we look at this section, what I want you to notice is there continues to be a, a trajectory in Acts. There has been this focus on missions at the very beginning, this, this gospel going out to the world. And then we've, we've continued to see that, but we've also seen an emphasis in the establishing of, of local churches and discipleship in those local churches. And now we, those, those themes continue in this section of, of Acts, the gospel proclamation, the witness of the church. But we're also seeing the witness of the gospel interacting with the Roman government, and there's going to be some interesting principles for us to consider as we look at that here in Acts chapter 21 and and elsewhere, and I hope you see here this aspect of Paul interacting with with his culture as as we do that, by the way, as we kind of look at these sections in Acts, we'll often be looking at larger texts, larger sections of Scripture to kind of get the whole story that we're, we're dealing with, and so be reading ahead be looking at the book of Acts as we continue to go through this, these next few chapters over the next few months. We're in Acts 21. We're in verse 27. If you would, after that lengthy intro, uh, stand with me as we read about Paul here in Jerusalem. What's been prophesied to take place begins to take place. It says this in verse, I'll start in verse 26, where we were ended last week and then continue. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And when the seven days, verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him in to the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came up to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying, Away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, well, look at what he says in a few weeks. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you today for where you brought us. We are grateful to be with your people. Father, we're grateful for the, the things that have happened over the last week. We thank you for the, the opportunity we have as, as, a, as a country to begin to protect more and more the lives of the unborn. And we pray that we as a church would be faithful to our, 
our primary task of, of proclaiming the gospel and then to live that out in our lives as we care for the weak. We pray, we thank you for those who have gone decades before us who have been caring for the needs of the unborn and caring for the needs of mothers and the poor and the weak. And we pray that we would be a church that is passionate about those things as well. We pray in the midst of a culture that does not love you or worship you, that we would be voices of peace and voices of proclamation of the good news of how a person can come into relationship with you, end their war with you, and be brought into your family through faith in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would draw people to you, that you would bring about new life, allowing them to to place their faith in your son, Jesus, alone for salvation. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Again, the the events that are set in motion here in Acts chapter 21 at its conclusion are acts that really affect the the rest of what happens in the book of Acts. A mob that that takes place here uh, hinders Paul's ministry in some ways or seems to hinder Paul's ministry throughout the rest of the book of Acts. This mob like all mobs, is not known for its careful reasoning or its, its fair dispensation of justice. Mob rule is, is not a compliment. A mob is not something that, that follows a due process or careful consideration and, and deliberation. That's not what a mob does. A mob has rash judgment and, and, and swift, merciless justice. In fact, I was watching a, or I was reading a, a, a cartoon, saw a, a cartoon this last week, and it had a, a mob with its, its pitchforks and its torches, and it was on this rush to some sort of swift justice, but there was just this one guy in the midst of the mob holding a sign that said, it's actually more complicated than that. Um, that's not a good member of a mob, right? A, a mob is not known for its nuance. That's not what a mob does. God is not a fan of the mob. He's not a fan of mob justice, or injustice that's perpetrated by mobs. The psalmist says this in Psalm 64. He's pleading with the Lord for his life, and he says, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng that is the mob of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush all the blameless, shooting at him suddenly without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we've accomplished a diligent search. God is not a fan of the mob. The mob, both figuratively and literally, acts out the deeds of the flesh. God's kingdom is is built on perfect justice and righteousness. And as ambassadors of God's kingdom, what are we passionate about? We are passionate for righteousness. We're passionate for true biblical justice. As ambassadors of God's kingdom, we we seek out justice, we seek out righteousness, and because we have that desire, we find ourselves sometimes at odds with our culture and sometimes find ourselves victims of the mob. We find ourselves, as we seek out proclaiming worship of God instead of the worship of the idols, we find ourselves in opposition to the world, a mob being deployed by the world to stamp out our resistance to the worship of its idols. And and that's what's happening here. Several times in the book of Acts, Acts 16, 17, 18, Acts 19, we see mobs beginning to, to try to enact mob justice. Now it reaches its fulfillment as it finally grabs Paul and seeks to stop his ministry. Here's the main idea that I want us to think about as we look at this passage and look at this this raging mob. Even as it attempts to thwart justice, the raging mob is used by our Heavenly Father to bring about worship. So a, a mob rages, and then as it rages, it seeks out to, to accomplish injustice. But even as it, as it seeks to do that, it's going to be used by our Heavenly Father, a sovereign God, to, to bring about worship of him. 
It's what takes place here. It's what takes place in our own lives. We're going to think through what, what Luke says here. We're going to see as Luke is in this section as he goes through, really through chapter 26 of Acts, he's defending Christianity against attacks, against the, uh, against the injustice that's been committed against it. He's, he's, he's kind of providing an apology to offense. And he's also helping Christians know how to respond to the injustice perpetuated by mob rule, right? A culture raging against it. So we see the sinfulness of a mob, we see the characteristics of a mob, and we see how to respond to a mob. And so what we're going to do is we're talking about how to understand the rage of a mob and then how to respond to the rage of a mob. Let's start with this. Let's talk about understanding the rage of a mob as we look at really beginning in verse 27 here. How does God understand justice? God understands justice, biblical justice, is us seeking to know the truth, first of all, right? That's the desire for someone who wants to practice justice. They want to know what's true. But as they seek to know what's true in a given situation, they also have a a pursuit of the truth that's in accordance with righteousness and, and, and fairness. So a person is seeking to know what's true, someone who's practicing biblical justice desires to know what's true, and then there's a process they follow for determining the truth that is, that is also righteous. They, there's not partiality. They're hearing both sides of a, of a story, for example. And then, once a person who's practicing biblical justice arrives at their best understanding of the truth, they dispense justice in a fair and an impartial way. They don't overreact, they don't underreact, they don't show partiality based upon who's guilty of what. They seek to know the truth, that that seeking to know the truth takes place in a biblical way, and then once the truth as best as can be arrived at is arrived at, there's a a fair dispensation of of justice. That's a biblical understanding of, of justice, right? Now, as we look at this situation, we see there are three things employed by the people in this story that are designed to intentionally bypass biblical justice. Three tactics they use that we see are, are designed to bypass biblical justice. Now, by the way, as we, as we read through this larger section of, of Acts, we're going to see that Luke is going to continue to return to the injustice here. So there's some important things that we understand. We understand that we are never to be members of a mob, although we sometimes may find ourselves to be victims of a mob. There's going to be both the, the truth is going to be attacked by the mob, the process is going to be attacked by the mob, the results are going to be attacked by the mob. All the things the mob does are designed to bypass biblical justice. Here's the first tactic they employ. One, inflammatory accusations inflammatory accusations. Verse 27. It says, when the seven days were almost completed. Now, what is it talking about? Well, go back earlier to verses 17 through 26 that we looked at last week. And remember what had taken place. Paul had been accused of undermining Judaism. It says in verse 21 that the people in the church had been told by Paul that he teaches all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walking according to our, our customs. And he said, what do we need to do? Then the leaders in the Jerusalem church say, Paul, what we want you to do is hear these four men. They've taken these vows, and we assume these to be Nazarite vows. We want you to pay for them to have their head shaved and to undergo a time of purification with them. And so Paul does that. He begins this process of purification and the time of that purification is coming to an end. It says in verse 27, the seven days are almost completed, and then there's these Jews from Asia, and they see Paul in the temple. The Jews from Asia may have been Jews from the region of Ephesus. They had perhaps seen Paul ministering before. They had not been fans of him when he was in Ephesus. Remember in Acts 19, there's almost a riot that breaks out there. Now, Perhaps some of these same people or people who have relationship with people from these, these other regions, they see Paul there in the temple. They're like, I know who that, that guy is. Maybe some of these Jews from Asia were the same Jews who were involved in stirring up bad reports about him among the church. Maybe they're the same people in verse 21 who were saying things about Paul earlier. Whatever the case, 
these Jews from Asia see him, and they do two things. Number one, it says they stirred up the whole crowd. That word stirred up means to, to confuse, to, to frustrate, to obscure, to, to cause confusion. Secondly, they do this, they, they stir up people by accusing him of things that aren't true. These are inflammatory accusations. What do they accuse him of? Well, verse 27 Verse uh, 28 tells us, first of all, they say, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and, and this place. These are very similar accusations to the accusations that were made against Stephen in Acts chapter 6, right? Here's this guy, Paul, everybody. You know who Paul is? Paul's the guy who's out preaching against our people. He's attacking this place. He's attacking our, our culture and our customs. This is the guy who represents a threat to us. And then there's another part of their accusation. Don't believe us? We know what he did? You know what he did? He is the guy who brought Greeks into our temple and defiled the temple, defiled this holy place. These are inflammatory accusations. Remember, Stephen had been accused of these things, and Stephen had to show, no, 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 I'm not against the temple. I'm not against the law. I'm, I'm actually preaching Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of what the temple pointed us to and, and what the law pointed us to. And Paul has had to answer similar accusations. And now there's these inflammatory accusations. These people are stirring up the crowd, and their goal is to bypass biblical justice. These are words that are being used that are characterized by the sinful speech that God prohibits. They're words that are designed to, to work people up emotionally. Inflammatory accusations are designed, again, to, to bypass biblical justice. Leviticus 19 says this. Leviticus 19, God says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And then he says in verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not, verse 17, hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. There are words that we are to use in dealing with conflicts with, with other people. And there are words that are clearly prohibited by God and types of speech that are clearly prohibited by God, from use when we're involved in a conflict. There are words that can be very powerful words but fall into categories of speech that God prohibits. Gossip, lying, slander. The word slander, the word we translate slander, comes from the Greek word blasphemia, from which we get the, the, the translated, transliterated word blasphemy, right? Or blaspheme. That word that we translate often slander means to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure his or her reputation. You say, well, does that mean I can't ever say anything negative about another person? No. But even as we talk about other people, our objective is not to harm the person, but to speak truly about a person's actions in such a way that our goal is not their ruin, but their repentance and or the, the protection of others. There's a characteristic speech of, the, the, the speech that's undergone here is a characteristic of the flesh, not the spirit. Slander is not the speech of the believer. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, and what else? Slander, speaking evil of other people, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus says, come from within and defile a person. So believers are commanded not to speak this way. We are not those who speak like a mob. Injustice is a characteristic of the world, not of believers. Titus chapter one, 3, verse 1. Remind people in the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil, to slander no one. 
to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedience led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But Paul is telling us that's not who we are now. Slander used to characterize our speech, but it must not characterize our speech now. And I would tell you, believers, slander is something that is very easy to fall into, right? It's very easy to fall into patterns of speech that are more indicative than of a mob than of a person who has the Holy Spirit residing in, in him or her. All of us, God tells us, are going to give an account for the words that we speak. Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. A mob feels justified in slandering and inflammatory accusations. And maybe some of us feel, feel justified in speaking this way as well. There's, there's a business, and this business has has, has harmed us in some way. And so we think, well, it's okay for me to speak evil about this business and, and to begin to slander it to other people because of what they did to me. Or maybe you're a young person. Maybe you're a, a middle school age or, or high school, and you, you think it's okay to say bad things about other people. And the reason you think that is because you're looking to adults. <laughs> you know, some of you are, are in that middle school, high school age, and as you're entering that age, you're you're no longer just friends with the kids of the people your parents are friends with. You're beginning to kind of establish your own relationships and kind of learning how to interact as, 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 as a, a, almost adults with, with one another. And these relationships kind of begin to form. And sometimes, sometimes that can lead to some very uh, unbiblical thoughts and, and speech, right? Think about just whenever I was growing up and some of the things that uh, things I said or even as, as a parent of of children who have gone through middle school and into high school and just some of the, the speech that, is, that characterizes some of those relationships. I, I'll tell you, young people don't emulate adults sometimes in how they speak about one another. It's not biblical. We in, engage in slander so easily, and we, and we justify it. Maybe there's a falling out among the, the friend groups that we're a part of. We all were part of one friend group, and now we kind of begin to drift away and one friend group can, feels like it's okay to say negative things about the other friend group. Well, we're not friends anymore because that person is, is too concerned with being popular. That person is, is too arrogant. That person is just really... Cha- we can begin to slander other people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Or we're part of the same peer group and just kind of make ourselves look good. We begin talking bad about other people. Or maybe... Maybe we just say stuff that comes into our head to, to make ourselves look good. And, and we think, well, what I'm saying is true, so it must be okay to say. It's true that that person is too concerned with her boyfriend. It's true that that person's kind of a hypocrite. And, and so we begin to say these, these, this, this speech that is biblically slander. It's, it's speaking evil of other people. It's not the biblical way in which we address sin. But that's just a problem young people have, right? Adults? Yeah. No, not at all, right? Or we believe that it's okay because we're angry. Or believe it's okay to, in a situation to, to not speak completely truthfully about another person. Inflammatory accusations. Once our communication is designed to bring about an emotional or a heated response in others to, to make other people look bad, We've started down a sinful path. Our communication begins to be designed to bypass the biblical process of dealing with sin. And once we begin to bypass the biblical process of dealing with another person's sin, we're we're committing injustice. Luke shows us the injustice of the mob. We see the injustice of the mob in our own hearts as well, right? Remember God's process of dealing with sin? God's process of dealing with sin is, is laid out, for example, in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he's not listened, you take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
If he refuses to listen to church, let him be to you as a, as a Gentile and as a tax collector. In other words, they're not being consistent with their confession of, of faith in Jesus Christ. And our goal is restoration. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, talk about that brother behind their back to make them feel bad about them. No, that's not how we do it, right? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, what do you do? You restore him. Say, hey, hey brother, this is what I'm seeing in your life. This is how I'm seeing you talk about your, 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 your wife. It's not appropriate for me to tell another brother, hey, have you noticed how so-and-so is talking about his wife? Man, that's really bad, isn't it? Yeah, it's terrible. No, no, what do I do? There's a biblical process of dealing with, with sin. Hey, brother, these are the words that you're using to, to, to talk about your wife. That, that's not esteeming her, right? You need to honor her. And then listen to what your brother says. And then restore him. It says, and then we, as we do that, we keep watching ourselves, lest you too be tempted. And one of the temptations could be to, a temptation to slander. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. My goal in a, in a group relationship and body of Christ is not to slander other brothers and sisters, to harm their reputation or to drag them down, but to bear their burdens, to come alongside them and, and seek biblical justice and righteousness together. Let me encourage you to ask the Lord to help guide you in ways to avoid the, the sin of inflammatory accusations and, and friend groups as, as statements are made about other people. Challenge people who are talking bad about others and say, hey, have you talked to that brother or sister about that? How, yeah, I understand that person's a hypocrite. Um, how are you dealing with that? Okay. How, can we, how can we help that brother or sister in this? Encourage you to be careful in your, your texts to other people, your posts on social media about whatever issue it is that you're concerned about with those with whom you disagree. Avoid slander. Another characteristic, another tool that the mob uses here is, is faulty assumptions. Faulty assumptions. Look at verse 29. They're saying these things about Paul, and they believe they're justified in accusing him of bringing Greeks into the temple because they'd seen him with Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city, and they supposed that Paul had, had brought him into the temple. There's a faulty assumption here. Now, what had taken place is this. You know, there was these four inner courts of the temple, and there was this, beyond those four inner courts, there was kind of an outer area, and this outer area is called the court of the Gentiles, and anybody could go into this, this area. And then there was a, a court of the women, and Jewish women could enter into that area. And then beyond that, closer to the uh, holy place, there was something called the court of the Israelites, and Jewish men could enter there. And then there was the holy place, and there was a holy of holies. And so you kind of got this, it was pro progressively more restrictive. Only priests could enter the holy place, only the chief priests could enter the holy of holies. Now, in the court of the Gentiles, separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women, there were these little stone markers, and on the stone markers was written this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. And that was written both in uh, Greek and Latin. And so a Gentile would know, don't go into this, this area. People had seen Paul going into the temple area where Gentiles couldn't go. And they'd also seen Paul walking around with, with Trophimus. And so what did they do? They assumed that he had also brought this Ephesian, this Gentile, into the temple. And, and the interesting thing is they, they may not have been intentionally lying. They, they see one thing, they see another, and yet they're wrong in their assumptions. They assume that, well, well, because Paul is so against Judaism, he, he must have, have done this. And there's the sinful mob behavior here. We, we believe we know things to be true about a person, so we, we rush to judgment without hearing both sides of the story. And, and we see this in our, our culture all the time, right? Where we, we, we hear a report about someone, and we, we, we believe it to be true because we assume some things about the character. We're, uh, we're following a certain politician, and this, this politician loses an election, and, and, but on both sides this happens. We, we assume the other person, the other people must have, must have cheated, and, and we know that's, that's how their side operates. And so we, without facts first, we just assume that certain things are true of other people. Proverbs eighteen thirteen: 
If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And then what do we do? Based upon our assumptions, we often justify wrong behavior because of how terrible the other person is. That person is such a terrible person, I believe this thing to be true of them, and they don't deserve due process. It's okay to pervert justice because this person deserves it. We have a, I mentioned uh, kind of family sayings, familial ex last, last week. We have another family saying, uh, think before blame. Think before blame, and, and it was used by a child who felt that they were being unfairly blamed for things and things were being assumed, and so they said, hey, hey, dad, think before blame. And so it's, it's, a, it's a saying that's used oftentimes whenever we ask, hey, who left out the milk? Hey, so-and-so, did you leave out the milk? Hey, think before blame. I mean, yes, I did, but think before blame, right? Think before blame. It's very common. You, know, you and I are wrong way more often than we realize, right? We, we assume things to be true. We assume things about life. I was reading a study on assumption and somehow people in the Midwest assume that people in California are happier because the weather is so much better. And they did studies on that and it's, it's not the case, right? Now, I know some of you are assuming, well, they must be happier in Texas because the weather is better and it's a different political system. Nope, not true. According to one study, people are happier in Illinois than in Texas. It's true, well, I assume that's downstate Illinois, but I don't know. I don't know. Check the stats, but here's the deal. No matter what the issue is, we're often wrong in our assumptions. I am wrong far more often than I realize. And so to justify, justify taking certain actions before I've heard both sides of a story, before I've investigated what's true, I'm in danger of practicing biblical injustice, of, of mob rule, it's a tool that the mob employs, not those who are seeking biblical justice. Number three, violent actions. Violent actions. Look what happens next in the text. It's too late. Uh, the violence begins. A whole trajectory of the rest of Paul's ministry has been set. Look what happens. It says the city was stirred up. And it's a different word for stirred up than was used earlier in verse 27. But it's, it's the same, it's a similar idea. Here, here though, there's more emphasis on agitation to, to set in motion. It's the word kineo, it's, which means like uh, I stir up, I, I, I agitate, I, I move to action. We get the word kinetic from it. it and, and they also, notice here, it says that they, the people ran together. There's this, there's this uh, oneness of this mob group. And what do they do? They grab Paul and they drag him out of the temple area, and the gates are shut, probably the, the gates of the sanctuary to kind of protect the, the temple, and they make this decision. They reach the conclusion that he needs to die. Verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. And as all that takes place, the, the tribune discovers what, what happened. The tribune would have been a, a ruler of, say, a thousand soldiers, or in the tribune, and then the centurions, each of them, are in charge of about 100 soldiers, and then there's all the rest of the soldiers. And he, he comes up, and he takes the, his soldiers and the centurions over them, and he, he goes down. They would have been stationed at an area very near to the temple, anticipating just a, a similar situation to this. And as the crowd, verse 32, sees the tribune and all the soldiers, they, they stop the beating. The tribune comes up in verse 33, and and arrests Paul, and is, tries to determine what's taking place. And notice in verse 34, there's the, again, the confusion that a mob causes and tries to create. It says that some in the crowd are shouting one thing, some another, and, and the tribune can't even learn the facts because of the uproar, and he orders Paul to be brought into the barracks, and he, he goes in the, up the steps, and he's being carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The mob is, is following after him, crying, away with him, away with him. What, what are they seeking here? They're seeking violence against the person of Paul because that's what a mob does. It doesn't want to arrive at the truth. It's more concerned with the assumptions that's already made about a situation. The process which it follows is not a process that seeks biblical justice. And the judgment that it pronounces is not a judgment based on fact, but it's a violence based upon the assumptions that it's already made and the inflammatory accusations that have been stirred up. That's what a mob does. The tribune begins to, to 
restore order and gets the truth. He's also made an assumption here. He thought that Paul was this Egyptian Jew who had led a revolt earlier. There was an Egyptian who had come to Jerusalem and he had led this group of assassins who were going around stabbing these Jews who were viewed as insufficiently Jewish, who were too loyal to Rome. And he assumes that Paul was that Egyptian Jew who had never been captured. He kind of escaped into the desert and no one ever found out what happened to him. And that's not, that's not who Paul is. Paul says, nope, I'm not that guy. I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. And then he's going to be given permission, we'll talk about this more next week, to speak to the people. We participate in the sin of this, this mob injustice when we're willing to go along with a course of action that's going to bring harm to a person without following a biblical process of dealing with sin. Perhaps we're willing to see someone's reputation at work tarnished. We're willing to see their, their career trajectory cut short. We're willing to see the relationship with other believers suffer because that's what we desire in our perverted sense of justice. As a believer, our goal must never be to take another person in order to cause them harm or to take vengeance, our goal is to win the lost and bring about repentance. We, we must never participate in hard attitudes that pervert justice, that lead to mob mentality. We've mentioned the Supreme Court case that, that took place this last week, uh, Dobbs versus Jackson. And as we look at much of the response to that decision in our culture, we see some very concerning responses, right? In fact, Whitney asked me on, on Saturday, as, as we kind of talked about some of the angry responses to this and how some, some segments of the population were responding. She says, are you, are you discouraged by this? Here's this monumentous thing for us, and we're, and we're rejoicing that the possible pr- protection for the unborn, but we're seeing other people respond with so much uh, anger and vehemence, and some who disagree with us are responding in reasonable ways. Some who disagree with us are responding in very violent ways. W- what do we do with that? How do we think biblically about this? Well, one, I, I think we have to recognize that the God has been very gracious to us, and we do find ourselves in a position right now where where God is is protecting our religious freedoms and our ability to express things. And yet at the same time, we, I think we need to be prepared for potentially quick reversal and for, for some backlash. If you look at the position of many who are, 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 are for abortion, who are against the pro-life movement, we see that the pro-life movement is being greatly, greatly mischaracterized, right? People are talking about how the, the pro-life people only care about the unborn. They don't care about women who are born. They don't care about the poor. They don't care about children. And and, and that's just simply, simply not true, right? You look at all of the statistics on who is financially and, and, and emotionally providing for those who are most at risk, and it's, it's Christians again and again who are stepping forward, and we must continue to do so, right? But there are some very, very powerful people who speak out against the pro-life movement. Even our president, uh, our President Biden, said, said this. He said that uh, women have now lost the power to control their own destiny. In other words, there are people who want to control women's lives. He said this, this decision is the realization of an extreme ideology. In other words, Christians who are pro-life are a threat. And when people are viewed as a threat, it's often justification for mob response, right? Not saying that's what President Biden is advocating. In fact, some of the things that he said in response to what he's going to do were less extreme than I thought what he might be encouraging. And so we should be continuing to pray for him for those who are in charge of implementing the laws. But what we see in some of the rhetoric is that there, there's these same temptations towards mob rule that could be, that, could, that, we, that we could suffer from in the coming days. So how do we respond? How do we respond? Here, here's what I want us to talk about, responding to the rage of a mob. First of all, number one, we understand there are spiritual roots, Right? There are spiritual roots to the, the cause of a mob, and there are some things we cling to. There's a spiritual reason that people persecute us, and, and Christ encourages us with that reality, right? There's, there's a spiritual motivation, and then also there's a spiritual reward when we find ourselves victims of the mob. Here's what 
Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is very similar to what Gene prayed earlier before the sermon, right? We must not repay evil for evil. When we see a, a mob forming, what do we do? We don't form a mob in response. We continue to seek biblical justice, to speak truthfully of other people, to avoid slanderous accusations, inflammatory rhetoric. We continue to proclaim the truth because what do we understand? There are spiritual roots to, to the opposition that we face, and there's spiritual reward as we, as we bear injustice biblically, righteously. Number two, we recognize there is a sovereign God. Even a mob is under the control of a sovereign God. As we look at forces that scare us, as we look at the accusations that we face, as we look at a culture that is continuing to demand that we bow to the image of a false God, and we continue to resist, and we see the consequences of that, what do we do? We continue to trust in a sovereign God. In the book of Acts, we've seen this already, right? There's a there's several early instances of, of mobs, and we, here's what the believers pray in Acts chapter 4. They, they're praying to God, and, and they say, The kings of the earth set them to quoting uh, David. They say that the Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So there's, there's all these groups that have conspired together to thwart biblical justice and to bring about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what do the believers say about that? conglomeration of forces that sought about the death of our Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says, they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even a mob is God's mob. Which brings us to the third thing. The singular focus, the singular focus of the believer. The believer is not so distracted by injustice done against him or injustice done against her that they lose sight of our ultimate purpose. You know, Paul's ultimate purpose throughout the rest of the book of Acts is not to get out of prison. His, his singular focus, his ultimate goal is to be faithful to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as he suffers injustice after injustice, he sometimes, when he can, he makes, he makes use of the, of the political systems that he, that he can in order to, to bring about an ease of his suffering and things like that. And that is entirely appropriate for us to do so. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. But he never loses sight of his ultimate focus. I want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to bring about worship of my God. That's going to dominate the narrative going forward. He wants to proclaim the good news that those who are separated from God, that the very people who are persecuting him, can be brought into relationship with God by turning from their sins and placing their faith in the Messiah. The Messiah who came is fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, suffered on the cross for their sins, rose from the dead, and now they can, they can believe in him, trust in him, and receive eternal life. Peter would say this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, as we talk about a singular focus. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Even as it attempts to thwart justice, the raging mob is used by our Heavenly Father to bring about worship. When we're attacked by our co-workers, when we're attacked by politicians, when we're attacked by activists, we don't respond in kind. We honor those whom honor is due, and we pray for those who hate us. We desire God to use injustice to lead to worship. Here's what Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1. 
Remember, Philippians chapter 1 is written while Paul is in prison. Due to the events that take place here in Acts 21, he's in prison. This is what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, these, these people who are his, his guardians, that, and to, unto all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Singular focus. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. As we suffer the injustice of the mob, what do we do? We rejoice because we know that God is using even this for the advancement of his name if we keep our focus correct so that others will become worshipers of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for injustice even the, the sinful injustice that, that we see perpetuated in our, our world today, we, we thank you for that because we know you are using that to bring about worship of your name. You're using that in our lives to help us to cling more closely to you and to cry out to you for your divine aid. And others are able to see that, and, and you're giving us opportunity to proclaim the good news of your son Jesus through that. Lord, help Bethany community be faithful to that. Help us to cling to your son Jesus proclaim his name. Lord, protect us from the same sins of the mob. Protect us from slander, from gossip, from lying, from, from sinful assumptions, from violent actions that would seek to, to harm other people, and help us to cling more closely to your son Jesus, to suffer injustice willingly, and proclaim the good news of faith in your son Jesus for eternal life. We pray this in his name. Amen.